Hi there, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we look at music from the inside and out. I'm Noah, you probably know me as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, you probably know me as 12-Tone. And today we're going to talk about how we engage with music we don't like, because I think if you look at both of our channels, we're both pretty positive, right? Like I think in the history of 12-Tone, I'm pretty sure I've said bad things about a piece of music I didn't make once total in like over 300 videos. I assume you're similar. I'm very similar, and that's actually kind of been an ethos of Polyphonic from the beginning, has always been that I think it's a lot easier to just criticize stuff you don't like, but it's a lot more rewarding and makes a lot better of a world to engage with stuff and be positive about stuff. I think that's something that's been at the core of my philosophy ever since I started the channel. Yeah, I think same. One guiding principle for me has always been that good analysis comes from a place of deep respect. And that's not necessarily the same thing as liking, right? Yes. Like there's songs that I respect the hell out of that I really wouldn't listen to for fun. I think that there has to be like some level of appreciation, even if it's like a frustrated appreciation, even if it's like, I really wish this song had more potential or song lived up to its potential. Just looking at songs that I don't like has always seemed... Like you said, easy, but not super helpful. Like, I think it's empty calories, right? Like, it's satisfying to listen to an album and be like, oh, this is terrible. I'm going to dunk on this on Twitter and laugh at it. But at the end of the day, you generally are kind of not made any better as a person. And your experience of music, I don't really think is improved by that. I think especially for like you and I who are doing communication, one thing that I really try and keep in mind is like, what is the intention of the work that I'm putting out there, right? Like, yes, very regularly when I do song analyses, people will tell me like, oh, you changed my mind. I thought this song wasn't worth paying attention to. I thought this song was boring, but you convinced me that it was actually pretty cool and deserved respect and I should be listening to it more closely. But like, if I put out a video that's like, here's why a whole lot of love is boring. Like, yeah. What What is my goal there? What do I want? Do I want someone to come up to me and be like, hey, you were right. Thank you for that. I used to really love this song, but you convinced me it's actually crap. Yeah. No, I, I would I would hate that. That would be so bad. And so like, it's even like, I think worse than empty calories. It can actively cause harm, especially in a position like yours or mine, where we're not just like discussing with friends, but making an argument publicly on a public platform to a large audience. I think that's a really good distinction to make because when I am hanging out with friends, I will definitely just like, you know, dunk on music and say, oh, I hate this and this is awful. But I kind of always assume that there's the subtext of that's just my opinion. Whereas when you're presenting something publicly like we do, there's almost this implied subtext, whether that should be there or not, that, you know, (laughs) we are authorities and people should put weight on what we say. Spoiler alert, you shouldn't. No, never listen to me about anything. Listen to Noah. Noah knows what he's talking about. No, listen to Corey. I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) But there's a lot of people that kind of really like music criticism. And I think music criticism definitely has a value. I mean, functionally, I know a lot of people like music critics because they don't have time to listen to every album and they want to know which ones are good that they should listen to and things like that. And I think that's fair. I personally don't really do a ton of music criticism, don't engage with it a ton. It's never really been... I used to do it in music school, uh, journalism school. Yeah. But (laughs) I really haven't in a long time, and it's never been a way that I engage with music. But I do think there's a value, but often I wonder to what extent are music critics kind of... You know, to what extent are they actually extracting that value from criticism? And to what extent is it just kind of 
easy wins on things that you don't like for clicks and views. Yeah, I also think it's worth sort of distinguishing between at least like three different modes in this sort of context because we pretty immediately dove into analysis because that's what we both do. Yes. But I think it's very important to remember there's a difference between like analysis and criticism and also conversation, right? Like what you and I are doing right now is not criticism. And if we start talking about songs we don't like, that's still not really criticism in a structured sense, but it's also not analysis. And it's much more akin to just sitting around and having a conversation with friends, which is literally what it is, except we're doing it for an audience. But I think that it's worth keeping in mind that when we talk about As we get into this, we'll probably be looking at some of the ways that like engaging with music we don't like is helpful and acknowledging that not liking things is a useful thing to do in some circumstances. And I think for that discussion, it is really worth differentiating between when we're talking about analysis, when we're talking about criticism, when we're talking about conversation, because they're very different fields. I think that's a really good point. And I think it's easy to kind of pretend one is the other sometimes, especially I feel like a lot of the time, because some criticism can kind of dip its toe into analysis and vice versa, those lines can get blurred. But yeah, I think that's a really great way of putting it. There's various modes of thought that we're talking about music in. And I think as people who do music analysis for a living, and also just generally, you know, both of our worldviews are very much of the opinion that all music has merit. Yeah. I mean, I've said that so many times. There's no such thing as bad music. Like, we say that all the time on this show. <laughs> I think what's interesting about that is I can say that, and then you can put a song on, and I can just cringe and find it so hard to listen to and find it hard to find merit in. And I think that's kind of where a lot of our conversation is going to be going today is kind of as people who are just the ultimate postmodernists <laughs> when it comes to conception of quality, how do we go about kind of engaging with stuff that is against our sensibilities while still finding ways to acknowledge that it has its own merit? Yeah, one thing that I've definitely found useful in that regard is to sort of draw a distinction between like, this music is bad, or even like, I don't like this music, and I don't understand this music, right? Like that, we've talked before about how I really don't listen to a lot of jazz. And like, if you were to put on like Coltrane's My Favorite Things, I probably wouldn't enjoy it very much. But like, it's very clear to me that it's not a bad piece of music. Like, and I would never claim that it was. And so... What's happening in that situation is more that I am just not comfortable enough with the musical vocabulary that it's employing to really understand what to listen to and how to draw value out of it in a way that is rewarding and satisfying. And that doesn't mean that there isn't merit there. It just means that I don't know how to look for it. I think this is something we talked about a little when we talked about kind of finding new music in one of our earliest episodes, where there are a ton of different ways that you can engage with music and you can engage with different genres of music differently. And I think something that's interesting about kind of saying, having the vocabulary, it's super interesting to me because like when people talk about jazz, they always talk about it as this kind of theory heavy genre, right? Yeah. So between the two of us, if you thought like, oh, the proper way to engage with jazz is to know the music theory of it, between the two of us, one would think that you would be the one who would appreciate jazz. You're the music theorist. And I think that that's an important reminder that I love jazz. I like it for some theory stuff, but I'm honestly garbage at picking that stuff up without context, without kind of being able to look and read about what's going on. It's not that there is a single way to engage with any piece of music. 
It's that you need to find a way to engage with a piece of music that works for you. And for me, when I'm personally engaging with jazz, I mean, on the one level, like everything, I engage with it on a socio-historical context, which I always love. And then I also just engage with just like liking the melodies, liking the rhythms, liking the grooves, you know, like that sort of thing. And that is exactly as valid. You can like Coltrane because of the crazy theoretical stuff he's doing. And you can also just like Coltrane because you think the sound that comes out of his saxophone is aesthetically pleasing. And there's no greater or lesser merit to either of those. Yeah, I think when you're looking at stuff that you don't know that you'll like, you really just have to find a way in. And there's always going to be infinitely many ways in but you have to find the one that works from where you're at. And that's going to be informed by what you already like and what you already listen to. Again, if you're trying to figure out what there is to like about a piece of music, that's a useful way. Although again, that, that can run into problems if it just like really doesn't have much on the axes that you enjoy. And it can be hard to sort of find a foothold. And sort of once you do, you can start to get in. This is one of the things I think you and I have talked about before I believe I mentioned it on the podcast, but like when I listen to jazz, often sort of my first thing that I'll lock into is like the bass and I'll look for like a walking bass because I love a good walking bass. Who doesn't? And so that can be a like a framework that I can then start to expand my appreciation of the song from that initial nucleus. But if I didn't have that, it can be a lot harder to sort of figure out what I'm doing. When I first got into hip hop, I was very much the same. I mean, I love hip hop now. It's one of my favorite genres, one of what I listen to the most. But when I was in kind of high school and university, I was the typical kind of like rock guy who didn't really, you know, listen to hip hop or like hip hop. But the avenue that I found into hip hop was lyricism because rock and hip hop are both highly based on lyricism. I mean, it depends what subgenre of rock, obviously, but generally, like when you're into the dad rock that I'm in, like the six like the Beatles and Zeppelin and stuff like that, like kind of poetic lyricism is baked into it. And so I found that common bridge and that's how I got into hip hop. But it's interesting because now a decade onward, I do listen to hip hop for lyricism, but I also, I mean, probably my favorite part of hip hop is flow. I also love like a good beat. I love a good sample flip. So if you, a lot of the time, All that you need is kind of a doorway into a genre of music, especially if we're looking broadly at genres. I think later on, I want to talk like a little bit more about engaging with specific pieces. But right now, engaging broadly with genres, all that you need is kind of a doorway in. And then you can start to develop your own taste within that genre. And you can start to be like at the beginning when I first started liking hip hop, it was lyricism that brought me there. And I was like, oh, well, I really like Aesop Rock. He has these like crazy, wild lyricism. And then I got into Kendrick Lamar for similar reasons for the lyricism. And then through those, listening to those artists more, from there, you can kind of branch out and be like, okay, well, maybe now I'm into Kendrick Lamar. He released Damn. There's a lot of trap on that. How can I listen to trap? How can I enjoy that? Now maybe I can appreciate what a good trap beat is. And you can kind of expand. A lot of the time, you just need a foot in the door and you just need a little bit of perseverance. It can also help to like have someone you trust who is already a fan of that genre to help you find that way in. Oh, absolutely. Yes. You can just go and be like, here's this, here's the music I like to listen to. What stuff in this genre sounds kind of like that? Because, you know, again, we're using hip hop. I'll keep using that as an example. There's definitely hip hop that like 
is more metal influenced. There's hip hop that's more rock influenced. There's hip hop that's more funk influenced. There's a lot of hip hop that's funk influenced. Yes. But like, if there's a kind of music you like and you can, especially if you can identify what you like about that, but even if not, like talk to someone who is already immersed in the genre and be like, hey, what artists are like this? And that can give you again, that foothold. So you can learn to appreciate that artist and then you can expand that to learning to appreciate other parts of their work as well, and then you can use that as a way into the genre more broadly. I fundamentally believe, I don't think everybody could like every artist, I fundamentally believe everyone is capable of enjoying at least a few songs in every possible genre of music. Yeah. I really, really believe that. And the thing is, you don't need to. If you don't want to, if you've got music you're happy with and you don't want to push yourself, that's fine. But it's really, really rewarding to find something that you don't like, to find a genre that you don't know. Like, over this past year, I've been trying to get more into country music. Country music is a genre that I never really liked engaging with. But over this past year, I watched Ken Burns' country documentary, which, by the way, if you want to get into jazz or country, watch Ken Burns' documentaries. Those will get you in. (laughs) But engaging with this genre that... I had kind of previously thought of as, you know, the the stereotypes that everyone thinks of country as, right? Yeah. Engaging with it has been so rewarding for me and given me a ton of new songs and artists. And when you get into a new genre, it's so exciting because there's like, not only are there songs you've never heard before, there's like, there's classics you've never heard before. There's entire modes of songwriting that you've never heard before. It's really opening a door into a new world. And through that, you can actually have new appreciation of genres you already like. It's a feedback thing where suddenly, hey, I get really into country and then the banjo is an instrument that I really like. And then suddenly I'm interested in hearing the banjo in a lot of early Dixieland jazz, you know, things like that. That's the kind of you can get those kinds of experiences where listening to music outside of your comfort zone can actually improve the experience of listening to music within your comfort zone. Maybe a good time at this point then to transition because we're largely making an argument that there isn't music we don't like, which I think you know, there, there's an extent to which that's true, right? I think that for my, like, experience with music, there's very little that I would describe as, like, music I hate, right? Yeah. There's a lot of music I'm not interested in, but the closest that I get to, like, really not liking a piece of music is when I'm frustrated by it. Yes. And again, this comes back to, like, seeing potential that it just refuses to acknowledge. One example that, like, sits in my mind is this Counting Crows song. I think it's called Omaha. Yep. Somewhere in middle America. It's this amazing intro. Like, I really love the first, like, 10 seconds of that song. And then it just doesn't feel to me like it goes anywhere with it. And so every time I hear that, I'm like, heck yeah, let's do this. And then I'm just sitting there for another, like, three, four, however many minutes. And it's just like, okay, but what was the point of that? And, like, and again, this is, to be clear, I'm in conversation mode here. This is not, like, official music criticism. This is certainly not analysis. If you like that song, great. Very happy for you, not trying to take that away from you. This is just my experience. And so, like, there are songs like that that I'll hear and be like, you had something really cool here and you didn't do anything with it. And that tends to be what I think of as closest to, like, music I really genuinely just do not like. I think music that I genuinely do not like, kind of very similar to that, actually, is Bad Covers. Yeah. Because it's having this opportunity and just not doing anything with it and not giving something new. So how would you go about kind of, let's take Omaha, how would you go about trying to engage with that on kind of a more appreciative level? 
I'm trying to think because I, I haven't actually listened to it in years because I don't like it. It was also a song that I heard fairly regularly because like my dad liked it and my sibling liked it. And so like when we were, you know, driving around or whatever, it was often on like the iPod or whatever. I'm trying, it's been a while since I listened to it, but I think if I was to try and like really engage with it again, I think that what I would want to do would be the sort of frustrated appreciation thing that I was talking about earlier and sort of try and look at it analytically and be like, what would I then do differently? How would I build on this intro with the framework that they have? How would I sort of mesh that into something that I could appreciate? To go back to a thing you were saying earlier, I don't think that you have an obligation to like every piece of music, right? Like, yeah, not an obligation, but even a possibility. I don't think that like, it's necessarily true that I could find a way to like this song, partly again, because I have these like associations with it that are completely outside of like its fault. It's just like this was a thing in my teenage years that I like kept hearing. And every time I heard it, I was like, yeah, let's go. Wait, what are we doing over and over for like <laughs> five years? And so like, I don't know that I can break that, honestly. But like, again, that's that's not the song's fault. That's my not my fault, but my thing. I think there's another question too, then when it comes to like engaging with music you don't like, I think that there's music that you don't like that's within the yeah. realm of music that you like. Yeah. I think Omaha would fit that for you. But then I think there's also music that you don't like that is completely out of what your mind conceives of as music. Things like, this is where kind of experimental music gets really interesting and where things like Captain Beefheart or, you know, harsh noise like Lou Reed's Metal Machine music or Nat Coleman in jazz, like his free jazz album, like things that start to break down your very conception of music. Do you have any thoughts on engaging with those things? Do you like engaging with any of those things? So what I've found is that I enjoy thinking about them a lot more than I enjoy listening to them most of the time. Like we talked about on the experimental music episode. Yep. But yeah, it's, I think when I do, when I find ones that do work for me, like the Shags is an example, which is not necessarily purposely experimental, but like, oh yeah, I genuinely enjoy listening to a lot of the stuff off philosophy of the world. Like it's a really disorienting experience, but it's not a bad one. It's one that I do enjoy. And so like, I think working from that, trying to understand what it is about that that works for me, I think part of it is just sort of, in the case of the Shags, and this is going to be very different from artist to artist, so this would not necessarily apply to like Ornette Coleman or Captain Beefheart, but like for the Shags, I think a lot of what makes it work for me is just the sort of innocence that it has. There's a real naivety there that's... Yeah, you can tell they're trying their best. Yes. And you sort of, you can't help but root for them. Yeah. <laughs> even though what they're doing is very weird. Like, and so obviously that's not the case with Ornette Coleman. Ornette Coleman knows exactly what he's doing. Yes. And that's part of what makes it exciting, if you're into that sort of thing, is that he is pushing these boundaries very intentionally and he knows exactly which boundaries he's pushing. I think there's something kind of virtuous about having your sensibilities in art offended. I think that it's very easy to kind of like take for granted what music is capable of because I think like so much of music, even when we're talking about like from country to rock to hip hop to pop, like all of this stuff fundamentally isn't really that different until you start to get into this really kind of things like Beefheart or Coleman, like these really kind of weird out there stuff. And a lot of the time, I mean, it sounds kind of like counterintuitive, but I will listen to Free Jazz by Ornette Coleman, which I find 
actively painful to listen to at times, but also really enjoy it because it's kind of showing you what music is capable of. And I think with a lot of really harsh, inaccessible stuff, things that break down your conceptions of time signature or key or even just kind of timbral sounds that you find nice. Like, I think things that break those down can be really exciting to engage with, but you kind of need to force yourself out of your box with them. Your immediate gut instinct, if someone puts on something that's very like a grating noise or even something like Death Grips, which is a bit more accessible, but yeah. still pretty out there. Like a lot of people's immediate kind of reaction can be revulsion. And I think that that's trained reaction. You can unlearn that. And that's just trained through having listened to music that fundamentally kind of, you know, follows the same principles for your whole life. And I think that it can be a very rewarding experience breaking out of that training, even if it is, like you say, on a bit more of a conceptual level than an aesthetic level. One other thing, like we're talking about sort of like looking at stuff from outside of the your comfort zone. And we're talking about this as like weird out there experimental stuff. That also describes like a lot of stuff made in non-Western cultures that aren't necessarily meant to be experimental, that are just the way that their musical vocabulary developed. And there's a lot of value to sort of engaging with that as well. And that's, I think, can have not necessarily like the same effect as someone who is like purposefully trying to push your boundaries, but like you can very easily like listen to say like an Indonesian gamelan piece and just have no conception of what to listen for, how to appreciate it, yeah. how to go about becoming someone who listens to that sort of music for fun. And that, again, I think comes back to this point of just like not understanding is not the same as not liking or it not being good. In those cases, it is fundamentally, I think, fundamentally wrong to say that they are bad music because you don't know how to engage with them. And I just wanted to be, because we're talking about sort of pushing boundaries and looking at stuff that you're not comfortable with, I think it's worth being explicit about that. And that these are often, sometimes these are intentional, explicit things like Frank Zappa, Captain Beefheart, but like a lot of times they're just people making music the way they want to make, the way that like feels right and natural and good to them. And because they grew up in a different musical culture from you and they speak a different musical language from you, you don't know how to engage with them. And it feels like this weird experimental thing, even though that's just fundamentally inaccurate in terms of describing its cultural role within its own culture. Often a lot of these kind of like folk musics are within their culture. Yeah, they're the exact opposite of experimental. Like a lot of the time, these things, something like Hooven throat singing or something like that, that can sound very kind of like jarring to quote unquote Western sensibilities is often something that is kind of has a rich musical tradition and is actually within its culture kind of a like lower C conservative style of music. It's all kind of perspective and I think it's very true and it can be really dangerous when you're starting to engage with music from different cultures and just saying, oh, it's bad. Oh, these people don't know how to do music. Like I think it's a very dangerous path to start walking yourself down. It's dangerous and it's easy. That's I think the thing that scares me about it and why I think it's worth being explicit and worth like sort of discussing is just like it's super easy when you don't have a connection to something to assume that it's even subjectively inferior right like I'm not even saying like 19th century European approach of being like all this music is terrible because it doesn't go like from five to one so 
let's, you know, colonize the entire world so that we can make them do our music, which isn't the only reason they colonize the world, to be fair. But like, it's worth recognizing that like Western tonality played a significant role in European imperialism. But anyway, that's a whole digression that I am not really equipped to discuss the details of as an expert because I have not researched that thoroughly enough. But it is true. But I think it's so easy, even just subjectively, to be like, this music isn't for me, when in reality, I think what's happening is more that you aren't ready for that music and you can change that. You have control over that. I think there's kind of this perception that a lot of people seem to have that music taste is kind of set in stone. And you're like, oh, well, I listened to that song five years ago and didn't like it. It's like you were a completely different person five years ago. You had different cultural touchstones. You had different musics that you listened to. I barely even had a YouTube channel. Yeah, exactly. I think if you do want to try to get into something, it's important to revisit it. The number of people I know, well, I don't know, but I've seen on the internet who like say, oh, you know, I tried to get into hip hop once and didn't like it. And it's like, well, have you considered trying again? You grow as a person and your taste changes. And sometimes you might come at something and really, really not like it, not have the vocabulary. And then in a year or two, be like, you know what? No, everybody likes this. Maybe I'm ready to take another run at it. And sometimes, like this year wasn't the first time that I've tried to get into country music. It was just the time that it kind of stuck, you know? Like I've tried to get into it before because I think it's my job to try to, you know, get into a bunch of different musics. But this year was just the first time it stuck because I kind of approached it from a different angle and had the socio-historical context, which I really need for music. And this time it stuck. So I think that there's... A lot of people that will listen to something once, decide they don't like it, and turn it off. And most of my favorite songs, maybe not most, but a lot of my favorite songs, I didn't even like on the first listen. An artist that I really love is Alt-J. And the first time I listened to Alt-J, I was like, what the hell is this nonsense? (laughs) (laughs) One thing that, like, I've definitely noticed in myself is that, like, if I go into a piece of music with pre-expectations with especially with people telling me like oh this is so good you need to check this out you're gonna love this i almost never do yeah like i will almost always like go in and like i want it to be so good that when what it turns out to be is just a good piece of music i'm just disappointed enough that i can't even appreciate it as that and so like so often what i found is sort of like going back and revisiting it even like the next day yeah right like even like an hour later, just something that where I have recalibrated my expectations to be what it is, it can be so much easier to get in there and find what it is that other people are liking about it and what I might like about it as well. I've always kind of been of the opinion that like, you can't really say with most music, you can't really say what you think about it until you've listened to it at least like three times. Because the first time you're listening, you're just taking so much in. And sometimes you'll listen to a song for the first time and be like, this is the best thing ever. Like, I love this. But a lot of the time, you're still kind of figuring out how to engage with it, especially if you're not coming at it with kind of context. The first time your mind's kind of being like, okay, well, where do I place this? What are they trying to do here? What's going on musically? What instruments can I hear? What are the words saying? Like, there's a lot of things that are being thrown at you from the beginning. 
And I know, especially when it comes to lyrical things, like in terms of lyrical things, I usually takes me a couple listens through to really get the lyrics and for them to really, you know, even if I can hear the words the first time, I'm not always processing the first time and I'm not really noticing what they're trying to say. I think multiple listens is absolutely key if you're trying to engage with something that you don't like. I think lyrics are really sort of interesting and useful way of thinking about this because this is true at like all levels of music. But I think as always, lyrics are the most obvious and therefore easiest to sort of draw attention to. And so when I'm listening to a song with great lyrics, like the first time through, I will usually get the sense that it has great lyrics and I'll probably grab out a couple lines that I really like. Yes. Right. But like, if you were to ask me like, hey, what what are some cool lines from this? I could give you a couple from one listen. But 99% of the time, if there's like two or three amazing lines that I pick out, there's probably like 50 more that I missed. Yeah. And so in the same way, like I can listen and be like, oh, that like buildup worked really well. But there's also going to be a lot more like subtle gestures in there that contributed to that that I didn't pick up that I may not have been able to really pinpoint where they were but that they still affected the experience. And so listening again can be really helpful to sort of pick that out. But now we're talking about music that we really like, so. I think the lyric thing is especially true when engaging with hip hop, where like it's so hard, at least for me, and I know for a lot of people, to get everything that's being said on the first pass through. Yeah, I mean, depends on the artist, but. Yeah. Someone like Kendrick Lamar, for instance, yes, absolutely. There's also another topic on this that I wanted to kind of talk about it's a bit of a pivot, but so we're both believers that all music has merit. And I think you should really try to engage with music you don't like. But then whenever I kind of look at this worldview, what I'm confronted with is what about music that is actively hateful music? You know, what about art that is kind of like, are we comfortable calling art that is hateful bad art? Are we comfortable like, you know, how do we engage with something like Burzum or how do we engage with like skinhead punk bands? Like, I think that that's something that's really interesting and it's challenging to the perspective of, hey, you should engage with music you don't like. Because personally, I don't really know if there's anything positive to be gained from engaging with Nazis. In a sort of personal context, I would agree. I think there is value academically, but that's a different question. I think that it's this stuff is not necessarily unworthy of study because it's useful to understand what is going on in these movements. But I do agree that like, this is one of the things like when we talk about like guilty pleasures that like I come back to is just like you and I, I think we've talked about this before. I'm not sure on the podcast. I don't believe that like guilty pleasures in the classic sense exist, right? Yeah, I agree. If you're defining guilty pleasure as like liking a thing that other people don't like, so you shouldn't like for some reason, then screw that. You should like it if you like it. But on the other hand, like I think of artists like Marilyn Manson and like for me, Marilyn Manson was a big part of my teenage music. Like I'm not going to pretend he wasn't, but he's also not a good person. Yeah. And like, I have sort of gotten uncomfortable enough with that, that I no longer listen to his music, even though like on a technical level, some of it, I still think I would enjoy if I could enjoy, but like, I just can't because of what I know about who he is. And so I think that in terms of like dealing with music that again, is actively hateful, has hateful ideologies. I think there's it's possibly like not super useful to separate the question of like, is it good music from is it worth engaging with? But I do think those are separate questions. 
And I do think that there's, you know, often a lot of like technical skill and creative work that goes into them, but that doesn't mean that they are things that are good overall and have a positive impact on the world. And then you get into the question of what musical quality is and you're trying to work all that out. And that's a whole mess on its own, possibly a future episode. But I think broadly speaking, I don't think that it's particularly rewarding to engage with work that is just fundamentally hateful. Any of what we're saying here of like, oh, listen to these other genres, check out things you don't listen to normally is like, I'm not saying go listen to like skinhead punk. I don't think that's what people kind of assume when we say this, but I also think it's kind of important to talk about because I think it's something that in a lot of music circles is not really talked about. The fact that, and even among people like me who like, I really believe there's no such thing as bad music, but I also believe there can be music that does bad, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, like you said, engaging with that on an academic level is very important work. But when I say like push your comfort zone, I don't necessarily mean that you need to go listen to neo-Nazi black metal. If you want to push your comfort zone and don't know black metal, listening to non-neo-Nazi black metal, that's a genre where it'll push your comfort zone a little. And that's really neat. I think that's an important aspect to bring up when we're talking about yeah. listening to music you don't like is I think there can be music that you don't like on an aesthetic level. And I think that's most of what we're talking about. But then I think there's also a difference between music you don't like on a philosophical level. And this kind of stuff is music that I cannot support and will not like on any kind of philosophical level. Again, I think would not support is a really useful way of framing it because like, it's something that I won't listen to and I won't recommend other people listen to. And that to me is a different question from whether or not it is bad aesthetically. But I think it's probably a more important question, right? Like, you know, you can make the most like perfect piece of music that like captures everything that I love aesthetically and then write a bunch of like neo-Nazi lyrics on top. I'm not going to listen to that. Again, to sort of come back to the, the point from earlier is like, it's not just that I don't support it is that I don't enjoy it and I can't enjoy it because of the message it's trying to push. And I think that can kind of bridge us to a bit lighter of a topic. Do you ever have any kind of, not necessarily because of hateful content, but just because of like rhymes that they use that you don't like, or even messages that they say that you don't really agree with politically, even if they're not overtly hateful. Do you have any kind of pieces or approaches to lyrics that you don't like where you're like, oh yeah, no, this groove is great. Like, I love what this song is saying or is like doing musically, but then the lyrics, I'm not sure I can get behind. I mean, a lot of classic rock is pretty uncomfortably lyrically with its treatment of woman. That's something I think you sort of have to come to your own conclusions about. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like you or I, especially you or I, neither of us are women. So we really can't sit here and be like, well, yeah, you just need to get over it. I think that's something that you need to decide for yourself. Everyone listening needs to decide for themselves is like, what is my comfort level with this sort of thing? And I think that you also, whatever you decide for that, that's not permission to not engage. Yes. So like, for instance, Walk This Way, just to pick a specific example, Walk This Way's lyrics are super gross. Yes. Like I didn't know that until I had to sing it for a class in college and I had to actually read what he was saying. It's bad. It's very bad. But like, there are still parts of that song that I enjoy. And I don't know that it's bad enough that I can't tune it out. But I also wouldn't say, you know, oh, you, you just need to understand, oh, it was a different time or whatever. Like, no, it, it wasn't that different a time. There's this documentary that I've seen parts of that I 
don't remember all of, but like the part that I'm going to reference is, I do remember this part, so it's fine, but it's about Wagner. And it's, I believe, Stephen Fry hosting and trying to sort of go about figuring out how to reconcile Wagner, the great composer that like helped shape 20th century classical music in a very profound way. And invented Lord of the Rings. Yeah, with Wagner, the just like virulent racist and anti-Semite and just all around bad person. And he's talking to an expert and he's like, so what do I do with this? And the expert is like, yeah, I can't tell you that. You have to decide for yourself. And I think that that's a useful thing to keep in mind is that A, you have to decide for yourself and B, other people can decide differently from you. Yeah. That I think is a really important thing like that you are going to reach a certain comfort level and that's fine. Like as long as you're thinking critically about it, as long as you're not using that as an excuse to not engage, but you also have to recognize that other people, especially people who are in the groups that these things are against, like, you know, walk this way for like women, aren't necessarily going to be as comfortable as you are if you aren't the target of whatever gross lyricism is happening. And then I think that that's an absolutely great perspective. And I pretty much agree with everything you say there. I think it is a very individual thing. To move it into a bit lighter stuff now, we've fully kind of de-escalated. What about lyrics that aren't harmful, but just lyrically, you just don't like? You don't like, you think the rhymes they make are dumb, you think they make stupid similes, things like that. Do you have any thoughts on engaging with that? Because I feel like that's a level where there's definitely artists out there, I mean, I can't really pull up any off the top of my head, where I'm like, oh, I really like the music, but the lyrics, it's not that it's like harmful, like walk this way or something like that, but it's just like dumb. Just nonsense and just like... The rhymes are forced. And I mean, this comes back to what we were talking about in our lyrics episode, where just like, I don't think lyrics are as important as you think they are. Yeah. I mean, general you, not Noah you, <laughs> but like, for the most part, I think people over attribute the impact of music to lyrics. And so I think that there's a lot of songs that I listen to where it's just like the lyrics don't really make that much sense. And they're not that interesting. And they're not like doing anything cool imagery wise, which I think is a distinction worth making. Because again, like I've always like I've mentioned before, like Rob Zombie is someone who does lyrics that don't really make a whole lot of sense, but that have very specific and interesting imagery to them in a lot of his songs or a lot of my favorite of his songs anyway. And like, that's a different thing from like stuff where it's just like, you just put words together. Yeah. Like you literally just like opened a dictionary, pointed to a random page and just started grabbing words. And you know, that's fine. But like, I think that that's something that can be very easy to look past if there's other things in the song. And again, this comes down to understanding which aspects of the song you're meant to engage with. And a lot of the time, if they're not doing anything interesting with the lyrics, that's because the lyrics aren't where you're supposed to be paying attention to. That makes a lot of sense. I have never found myself having a particularly hard time listening to music where I, the lyrics were not great. I have occasionally found myself thrown by things that are actively bad. The example that comes to mind is a like not even a professionally recorded one. So I'm going to be very careful about this because this was like a friend in college. And I definitely don't want to like get him. Although I don't think he listens to this podcast. I haven't talked to that dude in like seven years. But anyway, did a song where he was like singing the lyric. Basically, I think it was I know you're just happy. But the second syllable of happy landed on the downbeat. And so it was like, I know you're just happy. And it's just like it completely threw me off because like the poetic meter didn't fit. And it didn't seem like it was something he was doing on purpose. Like if you look at nothing is safe by clipping, the poetic meter there is completely misaligned. But it's so intentional. Yeah, I love it. It's fantastic. I It's what possibly my favorite clipping song. 
But like in the case of like the dude at college, like this was just like one line and like one verse. And it's just like it clearly was not done intentionally. He just wanted to get the word in there and it didn't work and it threw me off. And so that that sort of thing can when it sort of is structurally bad as opposed to just like meaningless, if that makes sense. My version of this that will always piss me off. And I mean, I'm sure this is probably done intentionally, but I cannot listen to, and I have tried, but I cannot enjoy Island in the Sun by Weezer because it makes me feel so fine I can't control my brain is just so infuriating when the word mind exists. You had a beautiful little rhyme there. You just stuck a fart at the end of it. It took so long for me to realize that wasn't what he was singing. Because he's sort of trailing off as he's singing that line. And like there's the music there and it distracted me and my brain was just filling in mind every time. And like eventually I was listening to it and I wasn't singing along and I heard it. I was like, did you say brain? (laughs) Yeah. Which again, may be intentional. Like if you look at like Mr. Brightside, they very intentionally imply one word with the rhyme scheme and then use a different word. Yes, yeah. And that may be what they're going for there to sort of like... I'm sure it's got to be. I'm pretty sure Rivers Cuomo knows the word mind exists. Probably. I would be surprised if he didn't. (laughs) Another front, and this is kind of talking about like lyrics you don't like. This kind of brought me to Dylan. And I love Dylan, obviously. But there's also a lot of kind of like bad Dylan. And I think that there's something really interesting. There's a really like fun experience to be had in engaging with bad albums or albums you don't like or songs you don't like from artists that you do love. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting place. And I honestly think that that's actually a good way that you can almost kind of train yourself to engage with other things. Because if you like this artist, there's clearly something there. You know, there's clearly something that you like about them. You should be able to find something redeeming about their worst work. And that's a good kind of exercise to teach yourself to try to like things that you think are bad. So for me, like Dylan for you is kind of like Jackson Brown for me. And in exactly the same way, I will occasionally go listen to Time the Conqueror, right? Like, yeah, Time the Conqueror is a bad album. Like Jackson Brown, if you're listening to my podcast, I'm sorry, I love you. (laughs) You are very good at music. Time the Conqueror was not your best. I'm sorry, at least you heard it from a friend, your good, close, personal friend, Corey from 12 Tone on the podcast, Ghost Notes. Come on our show. If you're listening, we'll have you on Ghost Notes and Friends. I would love to have you as a guest on this podcast, Jackson Brown. You know, I'll actually throw it out there, Bob Dylan, if you're listening too, we would also have you. Oh, absolutely. I would love to talk to Bob Dylan. <laughs> Let's make this happen. In that same way, I think that like, There are parts of that that I do really like, like Drums of War, for instance, is a song on Time the Conqueror, which I don't expect anyone to know because I don't expect anyone to have listened to Time the Conqueror. But I do like a lot of that song. And I think that it sort of goes in weird directions that don't quite work. But the basic structure of it is solid. And so whereas there's other songs like Going to Cuba that I just I listen to and I'm like, what are you trying to do here, Jackson? Like, what is this? And so trying to like parse that and figure out which parts of this album that I don't like are songs that I actually do see some, I want to be really careful with the way I use the word merit, but I mean sort of subjectively see merit in. And sort of trying to figure out like gradations of like which parts of this album really don't work for me and which ones I could find something to like. And you can do the same thing with songs where like which parts of these songs work for me and which ones don't. And that can be a useful lens. And honestly, like, Again, you don't necessarily have an obligation to engage with music you don't like all the time, and that's fine, but you are going to find yourself in situations where there is music you don't like playing because you are not in control of the music all the time. Less so in this past year where we've mostly been 
locked in our own homes. But broadly speaking, like if you go out into a public place, there's probably going to be music playing and that music may not be something you're into. And sort of figuring out how to deal with that is good. This actually, I think, transitions to one other area that I wanted to talk about, which is stuff where, you know, it's just technically not enjoyable. Like, obvious example is like American Idol fails or whatever, which, you know, I'm not a fan of those as a thing. But like, you know, you see all these like worst cover band ever or whatever, like, where it's just like the singer is like a quarter tone flat, like the band isn't synced up. They're not playing in time. Like they very clearly don't know the song that well. And it's just like, at that point, like, it strains my ability to argue that there is no bad music. I still stand by that as a principle, but like I listen to that as like, I don't know how to argue that this work is worth engaging with. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I've got a rebuttal for basically everything except this one. Like I really, I don't know, going, if you're out at a pub and there's like a really shitty cover band playing that's like singing in the wrong key and playing out of time. And I mean, the thing with that is that if you do try to engage with that, most of your engagement with that isn't actually going to be that helpful. Like people obviously find joy in the American Idol singing things. But I don't think that like schadenfreude's a great goal for enjoying music. I don't think that you should be looking to kind of like laugh at other people's inability or whatever. So I agree. It's a tough one that really challenges my idea of not having bad music and my idea of engaging with music that I don't like. I guess you can appreciate it on a comedic level, but that's very mean. Yeah. I do actually have a rebuttal on this point. It's not a complete one, but it is one that we actually mentioned earlier, which is the shags. Yes. There are very clearly ways to make music from people who think they are significantly better than they are that still work. One of the huge differences between a lot of this stuff and the shags is that in most of these cases, almost always, it's a cover. Mm-hmm. And this comes back to a point I think you were like mentioning earlier where like like the closest you come to like just disliking songs is like bad covers because like there you don't even have like the underlying structure that they're trying to do as something to latch on to because someone else did it better. There's one like famous clip that I want to be clear I'm not making fun of. I'm just referencing so I have a song to name like the final countdown and like they did it really poorly. And then this floats around and people are like, haha, look at how bad this cover of the final countdown is. And like again, I'm not super comfortable with that as an approach, but like I think there is a point there that like there is basically nothing that I can get out of that video that I couldn't get out of in terms of like non-comedic value that I couldn't get by watching the actual final countdown. Again, if you look at like the shags, the technical limitations of their playing are sort of like weirdly wrapped up in the technical limitations of their songwriting. And at heart, it is this like really all of that works together and all of that supports itself. Whereas like in the like final countdown, that song was written for people who were good at their instruments. And that is what's missing. Like, I want to be really careful of this, partly because if I'm being 100% honest, I was that guy. Like, not in the final countdown video, but I was that sort of like way overconfident in my ability to sing well. And I go back and listen to some of those recordings and it's like, I don't know what I was thinking being proud of this performance. You know, and then I go back a little bit less far and, you know, I find things where it's like, oh, I genuinely still like this. Yeah. I think I did a good job with it. And that's like, you know, I don't have a lot of recordings anyway, but like, 
it's definitely like as someone who like was not a great singer and was trying to participate in like serious musical circles because that's what I wanted to be going forward. I'm like really sensitive to that. And I think that it's very hard, therefore, for me to like find it funny when people are trying to do music well and failing. But that also doesn't mean I enjoy listening to it. I do think you can also find joy in, I mean, I don't think this is true of every case, but you can find joy in people playing music and enjoying it, even if it's off key, even if it's a little bad. If you've ever like seen a band that's, you know, technically bombing, but having the time of their lives, it brings me joy to see that, you know, I love seeing like a couple of people just go out and wail out some songs in front of a crowd because it's fun to perform. Especially that's a lot of the foundational ethos of like folk music. Yes. is just that it's not really about being the best. It's about being good enough and being with people. And also, I mean, punk is all about that too. Like punk shows are so great for people where it's not that they're playing their instruments well. It's that they're just emotionally pure, you know, and they're just... They're playing their instruments hard. Yeah, exactly. They're just thriving on the energy. And again, I think that comes down to the question of sort of like intersecting values in terms of like, you know, technical skill and like songwriting technique. Like in a lot of those cases, like a lot of punk songs aren't really written to be anything but punk. And when you hear punk covers of things that weren't originally punk, they're very heavily adapted to be punk. And so like they all work in that framework where you're not expected to be, you know, Ingve Malmsteen or whatever. Yeah. You know, that you're not supposed to be like shredding. You're not necessarily supposed to be singing perfectly in tune. Like, that's not really the point. Because of that sort of aesthetic, it works. Whereas if you look at, again, apologies to the people in the final countdown video if you're listening. It's just a good example. But like in that case, like they're not doing enough changing to cover up that they don't have the skill to do the thing that was originally done. I think that makes sense. I don't necessarily think that there are ways to find good in stuff like this, like people playing badly. But I think really more than trying to find good, it's just about what's the point in being negative about this? What's the point in, you know, like laughing at people who are just trying their best? You're not going to improve the world at all. You're not going to be a better person for it. Yeah, it's sort of a lot of times these things wind up being communal exercises. Like, yes, you know, we all share this video and we all laugh at it together and that brings us close together, but it does it at the expense of kicking someone else out. Whereas like, if I share a song that I really like and then like everyone's like, oh, this is super cool and we can all enjoy it together in the exact same way, but then that person is still welcome, right? Like if I share, again, to use nothing is safe because it's a phenomenal piece of music. You know, if I share it around and be like, look at how cool David Diggs' flow is in this, that's not something where if David Diggs finds it, he's going to be like, oh, this sucks. Which I think comes to another point that I wanted to talk about is just like, again, coming back to the question of like you and I making videos, like one thing that I also think about a lot is like, what if the artist finds it? Because that's possible. Like it's happened. Yes. I got an email from Tom Dumont, the guitarist from No Doubt. Uh, he actually found my channel through a completely unrelated video and then went back through my backlog and saw that I'd done a video about Just a Girl, a song that he had written. And he thought it was super cool. And he sent me a, like an email being like, this is great. And he apparently has some music theory background, so he filled me in on like how he was thinking about it, and it was awesome. But like I think about like what would that have been like if he had like found this like I think through my Iron Man video and was like, oh, this is cool. I wonder what else they've talked about. Went and was like, oh, they've talked about my song and clicked in. It was like, here's why just a girl is garbage. 
Yeah. Here's why you should not like this song or listen to it and why the people who write it are bad at writing music. Like, what would that have done to him? And like, I think like, you know, it's always possible. And like, imagine if there's like a channel out there that did, you know, serious analytical breakdowns of educational YouTube channels. And I found out they did a video about 12 tone and I went and watched it. And it was like, 12 tone is garbage. Don't watch it. It was like that. I would hate that. And so why would I want to do that on the off chance that someone else found it? Why would I want to do that to them? I agree. And I've also had an artist kind of comment on something and it was so rewarding to me to be able to be like, yeah, no, I really appreciated this person. And then they appreciated my appreciation of it. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was LP, right? Yes, it was. That was that was super cool. Congrats on that. Yeah. In general, like not liking things, it's not good. That's my take. That's the take. That's the episode. That's a wrap. <laughs> Again, to sort of come back to the uh, before we wrap up the question of criticism, where I think there is value in sort of being honest about your opinions. I think that it's dangerous to revel in not liking things. And it's fine to not like things. But I don't think not liking something is a personality trait. It's not a personality trait. And it's not like, I don't think not liking something is even a useful opinion. Like, it's fine to not like things. Everyone doesn't like things. But like, what's the point in like telling the world you don't like something? There is nuance to that. And like, coming back to like the hateful music, right? Like, there's value in me telling you that I do not support like neo-Nazi punk. Like, yes, that's true. I think with the understanding that we're speaking strictly on the level of aesthetic appreciation of subjective art, like, I find it very hard to identify a value to actively as opposed to passively not enjoying a particular work. Yes. That is a very delicate way of saying the thing Noah already said better, but... You've thrown enough qualifiers on that. <laughs> I'm a music theorist. It's what we do. <laughs> if you want to find ways to actively appreciate music that you might not like, you should check out our channels. I mean, yeah. if you're here, you've watched our channels, but... Probably. I feel like an obligation to plug myself at the end of a podcast, because... Yeah, it feels like the right thing to yeah, do. Yeah, <laughs> It's what the people expect. Yeah, the people are, they're really here. They're sitting through hours of conversation, just waiting for the plugs at the end. It's like, all right, let's, let's do that. I don't care about music I don't like, but I need to know who these people are that I signed up to listen to, that I almost certainly found through Nebula, the service that I probably only gained access to by watching their channels. Maybe Adam mentioned us in one of his videos. You don't know. That's true. Yeah. This is the most chaotic plug section we've done yet. Like, it's just going to keep going downhill, people. Like, we haven't even actually mentioned our channels yet. That this is where we're at. Yeah. Bye.